I found a list of the top 10 New Year's resolutions on the internet. Number one, lose weight. I won't ask you to raise your hand. I know who you are. I'm a prophet. (laughs) Number two, exercise more. Number three, quit smoking. Number four, quit drinking. Number five, be a better person. There's a great New Year's resolution. I'm going to be a better person. Uh, The world could stand some of that. Number six, uh, I'm going to spend more time. And number seven, going to spend less time on something in particular. Going to spend more time here, less time there. Number eight, I'm going to be more organized. Number eight. Number nine, I'm going to get out of debt. And number ten, this surprised me, the number ten goal, I'm surprised it was even on the list. I'm going to be more spiritual. People are making a resolution to be more spiritual. That's what we have in John chapter three. We have a man seeking to be more spiritual. Follow as I read. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born again of the spirit we're going to begin to look at this passage today and the first thing that we want to understand is we want to look at nicodemus a little bit and understand that nicodemus made an honest inquiry why was nicodemus an honest seeker or a genuine seeker he was first of all a a genuinely religious man He was a genuinely religious man. The scripture calls him a Pharisee. Now, most of you that have been in church any length of time, read your Bible at all, you have a negative concept of the Pharisees, and that is well-deserved. Jesus criticized them soundly and many times as they came and really were not interested in him. They were interested in tearing him down. And yet we do need to understand that the primary concept in the Pharisees was a good one. It just got off base. The Pharisees were men who were dedicated to keeping the Old Testament law in the Old Testament time period. Remember, the New Testament time period hasn't started yet because Jesus hasn't died, been buried, and risen again. So they're still in the Old Testament time. And so a Pharisee was one who was dedicated to keeping the Old Testament law as carefully and literally as possible. In some ways, the Pharisees were our cousins, if you will, or our brothers in interpretation, meaning this, we believe the Bible is to be taken literally. It's not just a bunch of stories. It's not just uh, something that contains a truth if you can find it. We believe it's literally true. And that's what they believed about the Old Testament law. And uh, here is a quote from some of them. The law is complete. It contains everything necessary for the living of a good life. Therefore, in the law, there must be a regulation to govern every possible incident in every possible moment for every possible man. 
Now right there is where they started to get a little off track because their commitment to the law made them want to be able to identify a right way and a wrong way to do every single teeny tiny act rather than trying, as Jesus said, to keep the weightier matters, to realize the principles of truth and to follow that. They were, they were consumed with knowing the minutest of details of what was right and wrong. The Pharisees spent hour after hour defining what work was. For instance, the Sabbath law says you shall not work on the Sabbath. They looked at that and they said, okay, you can't work on the Sabbath. Now, let's define what it means to work. Rather than taking sort of a commonsensical approach, they said, let's find out what it means. And so they spent time listing things that could be done and couldn't be done on the Sabbath day. For example, and I picked this one because I thought it was sort of funny. For example, to tie a knot, like in a rope, is something you're working with, to tie a knot on the Sabbath day was to work, so it was wrong. But a knot had to be defined. The following are the knots, the making of which renders a man guilty. The knot of the camel drivers, the knot of the sailors. And as one as guilty by reason of tying the knot, so also of untying the knot. But knots which could be tied with only one hand were legal. <laughs> if you think that's funny, furthermore, a woman may tie up a slit in her shift and the string of her cap and those of her girdle, the straps of her shoes or sandals, or the skins of wine and oil. So uh, it was okay for a woman to dress herself and tie knots, but a man couldn't take a rope and tie it on a bucket and put it down in the well to get water. All of these minute, minute rules. And what ended up happening, of course, was people got more attached to those minute rules and, and criticizing each other about those mi minute rules rather than going back and saying, you know what, on the Sabbath day, God wants us to take a day off and think about him. And remember that he rested, and so we should rest. And they got off track. But at the root of it all, at the root of it all, there's a man named Nicodemus. And remember, the Pharisees of Jesus' day, they were the result of about 400 years of this developing. It wasn't something new in Jesus' day. But at the root of it all was this idea that we should follow God's truth. And so that's a good root but it got maligned as it was worked out. As the Apostle Paul said in Romans 10, 12, they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. So Nicodemus was a religious man. He was also a powerful man. We're told that he was a ruler of the Jews. That would mean that he was part of an organization or a body of people called the Sanhedrin. Seventy men who were uh, given the ability by the Roman government to exert a degree of, of what we would call political or judicial power over the people of Israel. And certainly only a man who was uh, powerful and respected and so on would be put onto that body of men. The third thing we realize about Nicodemus is that he was a respected man because he was called a teacher. In fact, look at verse 10 or excuse me, yeah, verse 10. And Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel? And you do not know this? When the, when the Greek in, uses a, a, a definite article like that, it's, it's talking about something very specific. Now, I'm not under the impression that Nicodemus was the only teacher of the law in Israel, 
But given that he was on the Sanhedrin and a Pharisee, it's entirely possible that he was the most preeminent teacher in that body of men, which means he was highly respected and would have been a a very diligent man in terms of his teaching. He also was a sincere man when we see him right here, and the sincerity we understand is this. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus. Now already we've seen some things from the Pharisees that they were not that excited about Jesus, but Nicodemus came to Jesus on his own. He came to him at night clearly so he could be alone with him. He did not come to attack, he came to inquire. I think Nicodemus was not so much like the other Pharisees who were already set in their ways, but he was a genuine seeker of the truth. He was like the people in Acts 17.11, the people of a town called Berea, Old Testament believers who searched the scriptures daily. They searched the Old Testament. That was the scriptures they had at that point in time. They searched the scriptures daily to see if these things were true. There are a lot of people today who will criticize Christianity. They'll come to church. They might even listen to a fanatic like me preach, and they'll say, ah, you're all full of it. But they won't open the Bible and check it out for themselves. And all I want to say is the same thing I said a few weeks ago. I'm calling you out. You're a coward. And you're not a true intellectual unless you will read and see for yourself what's going on. If you pick up somebody else's criticism and pass it on, you're no intellectual. You pick up the scripture and read it yourself. And that's what Nicodemus did. Nicodemus was watching. In fact, we hear him. We, we see some of his sincerity as he comes to Jesus and says, Rabbi. The word rabbi, we, we roughly think of it as meaning teacher, but it actually means an esteemed person. Now think about this. Nicodemus is called the teacher of Israel by Jesus. And he's a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin. And when he comes in the door and meets Jesus, what does he call him? You stupid Nazarene from Galilee? No, he says, Rabbi. He speaks very respectfully to him, as we might expect him to speak to a superior. So we know that he is is sincere. And yet he is also cautious. He comes at night. Now, I, frankly, my, my opinion, and when I tell you it's my opinion, that means you're willing to take it or leave it. I don't see Nicodemus, I see Nicodemus being careful. That's why I use the word cautious. I don't see him being fearful so much. Although, although, what we find out in John 14 is here's the pressure Nicodemus was under. Nevertheless, even among the rulers, that's the Sanhedrin that he was part of, many believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they did not confess publicly lest they should be put out of the synagogue. And so the pressure is on. Maybe the pressure is that way where you work. It's okay to be a secret agent for God, but don't come out public because when you do, they're going to press you. Maybe they're going to somehow threaten to socially ostracize you. Maybe they can fire you from your job. Nicodemus was a cautious man. Now, why do I call him cautious and why do I not criticize him? Here's why. 
Do you know that there were many people who came to Israel claiming to be the Messiah? Many people. And they would come along and they would gather a group. In fact, you can read about it in the book of Acts, uh, about chapter 6 or 7 there with Gamaliel, when, they're, when he's talking to the Sanhedrin saying, look, about Peter and John, said, don't worry about these guys. If they're of God, you can't stop them. If they're not of God, it'll just dwindle away. And he gives examples of other guys who had claimed to be the Messiah and got a following, and then they died, and then, then they're gone. So in Nicodemus's mind, he's thinking, well, now here's a guy, he's done some miracles, he talks about that here. He says, we know you have to be from God or you couldn't do the miracles. But he's also thinking, is he the real deal? And so he's a genuine seeker. He's a genuine seeker and he's being cautious. Why would an intelligent person who is a genuine follower of God risk everything in his life for something not genuine? And at this point, he doesn't have the ability to know whether Jesus is genuine or not because he hasn't investigated. But that shows his genuineness. He comes and looks into it. I just want to challenge you today. Many of you, I don't know, and I don't know where you're at in your life with the Lord. I want to encourage you to look into it. I want to encourage you to get the Bible and read it. How many of you picked up one of those through the Bible in a year Bibles? And have, How many of you have done every day this week? Amen. I have two, and my wife has two, and we're going to do that. The two old guys out in the, out in the foyer, they have two. I, I want to encourage you, especially if you don't know the Lord, pick up a Bible and start reading it. Look into it. Either it's true or it's not. Either God will make it real to you or it's not. But look into it. Nicodemus was a sincere seeker. And so he comes and he says, Jesus... We know that you are from God, for no one can do the things you do unless God is with him. Now, I don't know what he expected to hear from Jesus. But look what Jesus says to him in verse 3. It seems to be off the track. Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you are born again, you will not see the kingdom of God. Wow, he goes right from who are you to... to uh, Telling Nicodemus what he needed to know. Now, why did Jesus do this? I would subject, submit to you that in chapter 2, verse 23, we get a little glimpse into how Jesus operated. John 2, 23. Now, when Jesus was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And he had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. In other words, there were a lot of people who went, wow, you're really something, because he did the miracles. They believed in him, at least to some extent, but he did not fully open himself up to them because he knew what was in their hearts. Just like he knows what's in our hearts today. But when Nicodemus comes along, Nicodemus a Pharisee, Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews, and Nicodemus says, you must be from God, Jesus goes right to the heart of the matter because he knew what was in Nicodemus. And he knew why he was there, and he knew what he needed to hear. So Jesus told Nicodemus what he needed to hear. God has a wonderful destination for your life. That's what he told him. Look there. Doesn't it say that? Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
The kingdom of God. Nicodemus was an Old Testament saint who would have been looking for the kingdom of God. Now the word kingdom gets used a lot of different ways in Christianity today. And I want to help you understand that there are three ways it's used in the scripture. And I want to help you understand probably which one of those that Nicodemus was looking at. God, Jesus says to, says to Nicodemus, look, you want to get to the kingdom? Here's how you go, by being born again. What was the kingdom? The kingdom has three distinct uh, concepts in the scripture. The first one is this. God has always been and always be the king of the universe. Some of you would say, yeah, that's how I normally think of that concept. God is the king and the universe is his kingdom. Uh, a verse like this uh, tells us that. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. There, it, it is absolutely correct to say that God is the king and you, there's no use fighting him because he is going to come out on the top in the end. Here's a second concept of the kingdom. God promised and will someday deliver a literal kingdom on earth with Jesus as the king for his people, the Jews. This is what we would refer to when we talk about the, the covenant that God made with David. And he said, David, out of you, out of your descendants, there will always be somebody sitting on the throne of Israel. And so there is this promise made. Daniel 2.44 says this, In the days of those kings, this is a prophecy of the future, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms. And it shall stand forever. Later in Daniel, he says, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given a dominion and a glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. There is yet coming a literal rule of Christ on earth from Jerusalem in a time period that the scripture refers to as a thousand years and so we call it the millennium or the thousand year reign of christ this is the kingdom in particular that nicodemus was looking for this is the kingdom that the disciples kept asking about right before jesus left the earth in acts chapter one they said are you going to put the kingdom together right now and he said for the umpteenth time guys it's not for you to know you just get out there and witness for me and it'll come when it comes. That, that's, that's the Lunsford paraphrase of that. But there is a literal kingdom. It is prophesied it will come. And then there is the third way in which this, this concept of kingdom is used in the scripture and that's this. All true believers, true believers in Christ as their savior, are living under the spiritual kingship of God and Jesus now. Verse Romans 14, 17, for the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. There is a sense that when you put your faith in Christ, you are living, you have voluntarily, if you will, put yourself under the authority of the king. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of his love. You leave the kingdom of darkness and you enter the kingdom of righteousness. That, that's what Tim told us about this morning. This, this whole area of Togo being ruled by darkness. And now, now it's been freed from that. And people have the opportunity to put their faith in Christ and many of them have done so. 
So he says, Nicodemus, I know you're aiming for the kingdom. In particular, Nicodemus is thinking about this literal rule of Christ on earth. He says, I know you're thinking about the kingdom. I know you want to get there. Now, you want to know how to get there? Here it is. You must be born again. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom. Born again. What does born again mean? Born again means, first of all, gaining life from God. The word here, actually, the most literal rendering of it would be born from above. I had to do a little bit of reading and a little bit of studying this week because, frankly, it kind of blew me out of my study chair when I looked at that and it says... The common meaning isn't born again, it's born from above. And I thought, why would they translate it that way? And I got to reading and studying, and here's the deal. There's two words in Greek for again, and one of them would mean like, just do it again. And that's kind of what Nicodemus took from it. We'll look at that next week. He said, can a man enter into his mother's womb the second time? In other words, can I be born a second time, two times again? And that's not what God was trying to communicate. He was trying to say you need a new birth, a different kind of birth. And so this word is sometimes translated again and sometimes translated from above. And I think one author really captured it when he says this, John, the the writer of the gospel by God's inspiration, has the habit of using words that have more than one meaning in a way that shows he wants his reader to see those multiple meanings. The birth of which John is writing is something new. So we would understand the adverb as again. But it is not an earthly renewal that is in mind. A fact which is brought out with from above. If we understand the adverb in the sense of reborn from above, we get both meanings. Reborn from above. That's what it means to be born again. To have a new life put in. In John 1.12, we, we read these words, But as many as received him, that is received Jesus, or believed in Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God. Birth from above. To become children of God to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of the will of God. Born again means gaining life from above. Secondly, born again means a radically different existence. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5.17. Many of you know this. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 1 John 3.9. Whoever has been born of God does not sin. For his seed, for God's seed, remains in him, and he cannot sin because he has been born of God. Now, I know some of you are going, oh, Pastor Dave, if the definition of born again is somebody who never sins, then I haven't been there. Now, I understand. In fact, if you read the whole tone of, the God, of 1 John is this. If you're born again, you're going to live a righteous life. Now, sometimes we do sin, and we need to confess that and get back right with God. We don't lose our salvation when we sin as a Christian, but we do lose our fellowship with him and we need to confess and make things right. But the clear tone here and the rest of that book and the rest of the New Testament is this, a Christian lives a godly lifestyle. And if your lifestyle is habitually sinful and if righteousness is not a joy for you, you need to take a look inside. 
The scripture says examine yourself. Not up to me to examine you. That's the deal. I can't. Because you all look like fine church-going folks today. Some of you look finer than others. But none of you look like big sinning heathens. I don't know what's going on in your heart, but God does, and you do. Whoever's been born of God does not sin, for his seed remains in him. And then he turns it on the other side and says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. This is kind of two sides of the coin. The new creation, sin stops, righteousness starts. And one of the key concepts of righteousness is the ability to love people. Born again means a radically different existence. One author put it this way, here then is the character or the nature of the new birth. It is not the reformation of the outward physical man. It is not the education of the natural man. It is not the purification of the old man, but it is the creation of a new man. It is being made a new creation. It is becoming partaker of the divine nature. It is being born into God's family. Born again means a radically different existence. Thirdly, born again is an absolute standard. And I put this little phrase, must means must. Read it with me again, verse 3. Most assuredly, in the New King James, the words verily, verily from the King James have been translated most assuredly. It, and sometimes it's translated amen, amen. And it means let it be true, let it be true. And for Jesus to say right up front, let it be true, let it be true, and then to go on to say unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. It's like Jesus jumping up and down and shouting or putting his hand on a Bible like we do today and swearing, I swear this is true. And of course, Jesus wouldn't do that because God told us not to swear oaths. But in some way, Jesus was trying to go, this is really important. Do you get it? Here it is. Unless you're born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. You cannot be part of God's kingdom. You cannot be the child of God. You cannot go to heaven when you die unless you're born again. Look, look at uh, verse 7. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. Born again is an absolute standard. It's not a choice. One author said this, notice the strong word must. Jesus is not saying that rebirth is on the whole a good idea. He's not just recommending it for people in some special situation. So perhaps people with difficult problems. He's saying you must be born again. It's said that George Whitfield, who was associated with the Wesleys and the Methodist Revival, many generations ago, he preached on this text again and again. When one of his best friends asked him, why do you preach so often on the text, you must be born again? What do you think George Whitfield said? Because you must be born again! It's got to happen. It's got to happen. Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus, you know what, Nicodemus, you're on the right track. 
You just, keep an, you just keep all those funny little laws that the Pharisees have written to help you keep the Old Testament law. I mean, man, you are the teacher of Israel. You're one of, the, one of the most respected people in Israel. You have really cleaned your life up, man. You are on the right track. Nope. He basically said, Nicodemus, you need a whole new beginning. Think about it. A religious man, a highly respected man, no doubt he lived a good life by many, many standards. And yet Jesus said, not going to do you any good. You're not going to carry that past death. You need to be born again. Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus to give a bunch of money to some organization and buy his salvation. Jesus didn't tell Nicodemus to sell his belongings and move to a deserted place and pray all the time. He said, you need to be born again. How does that happen? Turn with me to John 3.16, or look down the page at John 3.16. How does it happen that we are born again? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever does what? Say it louder. Believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Jesus spelled it all out for Nicodemus. He said, Nicodemus, I know you're sincerely seeking, so here's the deal, man. You've got to be born again. You have to be radically changed. You have to have a new life implanted within you. And here's how it's going to happen. You believe in me. You put your faith in me as your Savior. And Of course, he went on to enunciate the rest of that truth, and we will too in the next few weeks. But I just want to ask you today, have you been born again? Can you point to a time in your life when you can say, you know what? Before this time, I did not know Christ as my Savior, but I came to a point where I understood I needed to believe in Him, and I put my faith in Christ. If that has never happened in your life, it's possible you don't know Christ as your Savior. I would ask you a second question. If you can't point to that day, let me ask you right now. Do you, right now, at this moment, believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior with no faith resting on anything else? Not your good works? not your membership in this church, not the money you put in the offering today, not anything else. I am believing in Christ as my Savior alone because if that's true, then you've been born again. But if that's not true, no matter how religious you are, no matter how nice you are, no matter how new your suit is today, you are going nowhere toward heaven. And friend, I just want to tell you, not only you must be born again, but I want to tell you, you can be. God wants to save you. Just like he wanted to save those people in Africa. Man, I've felt like you did so many times that I'm not going to go fool with that person. One of those people that I felt that way toward in Tuckwilla became my church secretary after somebody else led her to the Lord and after we discipled her. But when I got that phone call on the phone, I thought, ah, whatever. God just rebuked me. But God wanted to save her. And he had to go around me to do it. And God wants to save some of you and some of your friends. What a great thing that would be. Let's bow in prayer. Father, thank you for letting us learn that truth. We must be born again. Thank you for letting us learn that Jesus died for our sins. And For many of us here, thank you for bringing us to that realization early in life and many years ago. We're so glad to know Jesus. Father, I pray for every other person here that you will open their eyes to the truth if they haven't yet. Help them to see themselves clearly. 
Help them to see Jesus clearly and help them to be born again today if it's never happened before. I pray in Christ's name, amen.